Hello, everyone. Welcome to another 101 podcast session. And once again, we will be uh, discussing Dan Abrams' book, John Adams Under Fire. Well, yesterday we um, talked about uh, the trial of uh, Captain uh, Thomas Preston and how he um, was acquitted on the grounds that um, he had not um, ordered uh, the actual um, command for his um, squad to fire into the unruly crowd, that is, of uh, angry protesters. Uh, Basically, it's been determined that the soldiers were the ones who had taken matters into their own hands by firing into that unruly crowd. Well, uh, we will focus on uh, this session of the second trial being that of the soldiers, but there are some other things to mention that um, are um, of significant importance. When we think of entertainment, especially in this day and age, we tend to think of entertainment as like going to a movie theater or watching television, uh, going to a, um, a play, uh, or any kind of theatrical um, performance. And while all of that does have significant uh, relevance in today's world, in the 18th century, entertainment was uh, a little bit more limited But one thing that I was surprised to learn about with regards to entertainment in Massachusetts is that by around the time of 1750 and up until about the late 1760s, it's a period of time where theatrical entertainment is not only just being frowned upon, but it's in the works of trying to be um, abolished altogether. Why would one say that theatrical performances are a bad thing, but why should they be abolished? Well, for for many in Massachusetts, they saw um, professional theater as something that um, was what we would call an undoing of society. In other words, It's one thing to entertain a crowd, but if you are promoting content, or should I say if you're promoting activity that has potential to make one or a group of people become um, what we would call either immoral or um, make them engage in um, activities that are undoing, it raises a lot of uh, red flags. For example, theatrical performances could lead to an increase in immorality along with a potential decline in improper uh, religious practices. In other words, you know, people worshiping more than one God or people not perhaps adhering to scriptures or not attending church on a regular basis, not just attending church, but let alone questioning uh, church doctrines. Perhaps, uh, as for uh, many um, church um, goers in the 18th century, they adhered to not uh, working on the Sabbath. 
And in this case, there was always a potential that someone could break that command and do the opposite. So basically, professional theater itself has a lot of unknowns to it. There's always a chance that someone in the crowd's going to do something that's um, going to be very different, but it's going to backfire on them for all the wrong reasons. So how was this matter uh, resolved? Well, in 1750, Massachusetts, uh, the the Legislative Assembly, I should say, of Massachusetts, uh, passes a law in that year known as the Massachusetts Act. The legislation itself centered on uh, protecting good individual character from within all communities, or should I say cities and towns. So basically, it it sums up what I had just stated earlier, in that um, this piece of legislation really tried to um, help people become um, leery of misfortunes as a result of what people were doing on center stage. Today we see it as just for show, but in that day and age, it would have been very unheard of for someone to flaunt their inappropriate um, lifestyle, but in the sense to flaunt it on stage to where countless people watching had the potential to fall into someone else's misfortune. So, what replaces stage theater, or should we say professional theater? Street theater. What is street theater? It consists of demonstrations, celebrations, orations to funerals. But, to sum it all up in a nutshell, the real theatrics, or the real theatrical performances, are what takes place in the courtroom. Trials. It must be said that trials were a very popular form of entertainment. And the Boston Massacre trials, given all that the city of Boston had endured leading up to the night of the massacre on March 5th of 1770, many in Boston saw not just the massacre trials, but trials in general as a measure or as measures to help defuse economic troubles that had been brought on by Parliament's, um, what do you call it, um, what do you call it, Parliament's recklessness and or their ignorance in, rain, in passing legislation that ranged from the Stamp Act to the Townshend duties. And everyone in the, in the audience had an interest, not just in the Boston Massacre trials, but in any other trial. They had an interest and it didn't make a difference what your um, personal allegiance was, even in a court trial, whether you were a loyalist or a patriot. People as a whole in Boston were enamored by performances of many uh, unique characters, but I would say most notably John Adams. By this point, he is one of the most recognizable lawyers in all of Massachusetts. But it's safe to say that he might even be recognized by others outside of Massachusetts. I can't say that for 100% sure, but the bottom line is, is that he has a lot of fame, but he is exercising his fame um, with, uh, what do you call it, 
he's exercising it um, on an appropriate scale. He's not flaunting it, and he's not taking advantage of people uh, because, uh, as I had said from a previous podcast, there were many who were skeptical of lawyers, even leading up to this um, incident. Many saw lawyers as individuals who were only looking after their own well-being, but that wasn't the case for John Adams. These trials had a, a significant impact on many people in terms of emotional feelings. Well, you think about it, those who were of uh, patriot faith or on the side of the patriots, they had endured taunts, insults. They had wit- witnessed British troops walking down the streets with arrogance. And worst of all, they saw the British soldiers dismissing the laws which were to protect the natives of Boston. So in one, in one sense, okay, if you have an outside force, even though they may be tied to your colony or tied to your uh, territory from another um, part of the world, it's bad enough that they're coming in to um, quash any rebellion or to uh, maintain law and order, but for them to not adhere to your um, laws or rules, uh, that is really a slap in the face. And that's why the patriots were so angry at the presence of the of the British in Boston. It was bad enough they didn't like England because of the way Parliament went about um, passing the Stamp Act and the Townshend duties, but to bring their own people over thinking they could restore um, civilian life in Boston, but yet um, doing so in a manner that did not result in uh, proper uh, respect for the laws that were already um, on the book to protect the natives of Boston. Well, um, how many cases do would is it safe to say that John Adams could have been involved in leading up to March of 1770? Well, think about this. In his time, he's not revolving his work around one court case. I was uh, very surprised to learn this number as a result of, of having read Dan Abrams' book. He was involved in 43 other cases at the same time that the Boston Massacre incident had not only happened, but even at the time that he was uh, taking on the trials. These other trials ranged from illegal searches to property disputes. It's safe to say that Mr. Adams himself wasn't missing out on anything. Was John Adams a firm believer in liberty, despite the fact that he was taking on a case or taking on two trials that involved representing the opposition? The answer is yes. He was an ardent supporter behind liberty, However, there are two essential elements for liberty establishment. They are representative government and a trial by jury. Representative government can be best summed up as the following, where legislators are elected by the people with mutual consent. 
a binding agreement between parties of lawmakers and constituents. So in other words, you just don't get elected into government on your own in terms of a representative. A representative has to be elected by the people who voted him in. And when I say him, I'm referring to 18th century standards. No woman in colonial America was serving in her legislator, in her legislative branch, rather, I should say, during this time. Of course, we still have a lot of ways to go before that um, big step um, takes place. And the other one being trial by jury. And remember, uh, as I said from a previous podcast, there was no such thing as a Bill of Rights in 1770. Not the same kind of Bill of Rights that we think of when we know um, with surrounding our uh, Constitution. Trial by jury is where everyone is entitled to a fair trial with listeners being the jury who have the power to determine based on evidence, one's guilt or innocence. So what was John Adams' mission overall? Not just for the Boston, out of the Boston Massacre trials, but going forward in, in ensuring that our judiciary system would work, not just for the present, but for many years to come after 1770. His mission was to keep politics out of trials. By keeping politics out of trials, it would prevent outside interests from swaying influence to jurors. In other words, jurors need to be independent in in reaching their verdicts. Is it safe to say that the Sons of Liberty, for all the... um, bright people like Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, John Hancock, Sam Adams, Patrick Henry, Dr. Samuel Prescott, for all those people who were a part of the Sons of Liberty movement, as good as their intentions were, they were really an interest group for their time. And yes, interest groups are important. They do serve a purpose. But John Adams's biggest fear was that the Sons of Liberty movement, as strong as a movement that it was, had the power, especially in part by Sam Adams, who was probably the most vocal. I mean, the others were vocal, but I'd say Sam Adams by far was the most vocal and ardent supporter behind the Sons of Liberty movement. John Adams feared that if Sam Adams could have had it his way, being his cousin, that he could find a way to influence the jurors to reach a decision all based on uh, what's called partisan influence. So basically, the jurors have to be impartial. They have a right to come up with their own opinion as to determining whether an individual or a group of individuals like the eight soldiers here tonight in our podcast session... Um, stood before um, the judge, or the jury, rather, I should say, to say, hey, are we innocent or guilty? Of course, all eight soldiers did plead not guilty. But for John Adams, though, politics, emotions to personal interests, none of those factors can override 
courtroom evidence. In other words, emotions cannot override facts. Yes, the Sons of Liberty did not like the fact that the British had fired into the crowd, or should we say that unruly crowd, in the eyes of uh, the loyalists, that would be the case. Yes, Sam Adams has a right to his opinion, but the thing is, is that Sam Adams is not a lawyer. He's not arguing this case. So therefore, he could say all that he wants in terms of his opposition, but no matter what he says, his emotions cannot override the facts of not only just the trial of Dr. Um, not of Dr., but of uh, Captain Thomas Preston, but that of, of these eight soldiers who um, took matters into their own hands. I found it also interesting to note that the soldiers, or that soldiers who were on um, colonial America territory, they weren't permitted to fire on civilians. However, like civilians, they did have the right to defend their lives. So this is an interesting question then. Okay, if you can't fire on civilians, then why did the incident itself happen? They didn't just fire on civilians to create a scene. Their lives were threatened, not just by means of a verbal um, accusation or an inappropriate verbal remark. They had objects thrown at them, from oyster shells to snowballs to ice blocks to um, anything else that was um, tangible by the uh, members of that unruly crowd. So, as I've said before, there were soldiers who were knocked to the ground. There were soldiers who were pelted with the oyster shells in the snow. It gets to the point where you can only take but so much abuse that once you get knocked to the ground, you've got no other choice but to stand up and fight for yourself. If not, you're going to keep getting knocked to the ground, and then it's going to be up to you as to whether or not you're going to get back up and do something about it. And that's ultimately what happened on the night of March 5th, people. The soldiers had no other choice in the end to not only have gotten back up from the ground, but to have fired onto the crowd. They were, the crowd was warned. The crowd had been warned more than once to disperse. The crowd kept egging the soldiers on. Historians even know, too, that, some, uh, that a handful of protesters came from taverns and they just didn't come from taverns on their own whim. They were um, told to come from. They were told to come to King Street by means of other people who were walking up and down uh, where some of these other taverns were located. And to make matters worse, a handful of these uh, protesters who came from the tavern, or taverns, I should say, were believed to have been drunk. So it's not like people just got up. And you, at their own free will, and said, "Well, you know what? I think I'm going to join uh, these other people in this uh, protest." Um, no, uh, it's bad enough to be unstable, but to be drunk, it just makes the matters even worse. Well, um, what I do know is this: um, Does anybody know? Well, before I get to that term. We're going to talk briefly about um, the eight soldiers, but I would really like to be able to talk about two of them. 
the two that I want to talk about are the are the following: Matthew Kilroy and Hugh Montgomery. Why are the two of them so um, are so um, unique and and all that? Well, I wouldn't say it's a question of them being special. It's more of an issue that the two of them had um, exercised extreme uh, passions. And these passions did not um, center around uh, just being in Boston. Witnesses testified at their trial, being the soldier's trial, that Matthew Kilroy and Hugh Montgomery had professed on many of occasions that they wanted to not only just harm the people of Boston, they wanted to kill as many civilians that they could get their hands on. Now, it's one thing to say uh, a nasty comment like this. It's another thing to follow through with it. Hugh Montgomery was knocked to the ground. Matthew Kilroy had an object or two thrown at him. Matthew Kilroy did shoot and kill uh, Samuel Gray. Samuel Gray was shot in the head right away. Matthew Kilroy uh, was believed to have wounded uh, one or two other men. If he didn't shoot them, he hurt them with means of bayonet. Because as from a previous podcast, uh, all the British soldiers, not just on that night, but in general, had their bayonets fixed on them. A very powerful way to say, hey, if, if, you, are to harass, if you are to hurt me, you may not get shot, but you will get hurt with a bayonet. It's bad enough to be shot, but getting hurt with a bayonet is an even more, um, what I call, dangerous um, circumstance. So, ironically, six out of the eight soldiers were found to be not guilty. And why is that? Because there never really, there wasn't enough circumstantial evidence, or not just circumstantial, there was not enough concrete evidence, for that matter, to say that, hey, these other six um, soldiers had... There was not enough evidence to say that, hey, they had conspired with one another um, to uh, commit um, felonious or should I say heinous acts amongst the crowd. Sure, they could have uh, shouted, sure, they could have said something like, you know, disperse and all that, but there was no mention of these other six individuals saying anything like, you know, we're going to kill as many Bostonians as there is possible. It is possible that one of the six could have um, used their bayonets to to deter an unruly crowd member, but as for um, those who were wounded, there's there was just never enough evidence to prove that any of those six had actually harmed uh, an innocent or you know as the the Patriots would have liked to have said an innocent bystander, but even that is uh, questionable unto itself because I don't believe that there was anybody innocent on the night of March 5th. It's probably safe to say that both parties bore some form of fault, but I would say that there again, it all, it all goes back to the events prior to the night of March 5th. But the more I think about it, it might be fair to say that the unruly crowd that gathered on King Street bore the brunt of the fault on that particular night. So, 
what was the punishment for Matthew Kilroy and Hugh Montgomery? Well, prior to their official punishment, they claimed an ancient British rite known as benefit of clergy. Now, I did not know that this uh, rite existed until having read Dan Abrams' book. Benefit of clergy originally was meant to allow a clergyman to avoid punishment in a secular court by proving he was a member of the church. Now, here is the most essential element or the most essential principle behind benefit of clergy in terms of rule. This was a one-time circumstance measure where an individual, where it, where it was once used, and once it was used, it could not be used on any other uh, circumstance in life. So you had to be very careful on when, on when you chose to use it, because it, it was just a one-time thing, people. But once you used it, you were branded on your right hand. And in this case, I should say on the thumbs of your right, on, the, on your right thumb, I should say. This is what happened to Matthew Kilroy and Hugh Montgomery. Both received brandings branded with the letter M on their thumb. Why were they branded with the letter M on their thumb? M represented manslaughter. Manslaughter was referred to as the killing of a person on a sudden instance. While to some people it may not have been seen as premeditated, it could be still viewed as voluntary and involuntary based on self-defense approach. So it is safe to say that while, yes, um, Samuel Gray had to have um, thrown something at uh, Matthew Kilroy, or at one of the two who was found guilty, and Samuel, given that Samuel Gray was killed on sight right away, this was an example of uh, killing someone on a sudden instance. Crispus Attucks, who was the second person to, to, to die, um, the other two men who died right away, all of this was considered to be manslaughter. As for Patrick Carr, given that he died 10 days after the shootings or after the massacre, well, one could say it was involuntary. But then again, um, there's not a 100% definitive answer on that. The bottom line is that um, Matthew Kilroy and Hugh Montgomery, were, they um, could have faced a death penalty but were spared in large part because they themselves claimed the right known as benefit of clergy. Had they not claimed this right, then I would say that it would have been a very good likelihood they could have died by means of execution. Well, what happened to the eight soldiers after the trial, as well as to Hugh Montgomery and Matthew Kilroy after they received their punishment by being branded on their right thumbs? They all were told to leave Massachusetts, but at the same time, while they were told to leave, they were told, also told to never return ever again. They left Massachusetts going to New Jersey with their regiment being the 29th Regiment of Foot. 
Well, what happened to Captain Thomas Preston? Well, the day after his eight, those eight soldiers were acquitted, he left to go back to England, <laughs> never to return to uh, colonial America. And here's the irony to it. He never really thanked John Adams for his services. Is it safe to say that perhaps Captain Preston did not truly view John Adams as someone who really was a pro-British sympathizer? I think it's fair to say that that is the case. John Adams was not boasting, was not of the boasting type. This will be discussed in, in another podcast session, but what I can tell you right now is that John Adams was not playing favorites throughout the trial. It took a lot of courage for him, though, to um, represent not just Captain Preston, but the eight soldiers who fired into the crowd on the night of March 5th. No one else was willing to do it. Was John Adams looking for fame out of all this? No. He loved Boston. He cared deeply about the city and its people. What he was all the more concerned about was maintaining order and stability in a time of uncertainty, in a time of a major crisis that was either going to make or break not just the people of Boston, but could have widespread ramifications on the other 12 colonies and their cities and towns as well. I can also say that um, another reason why it was essential to have waited for these two trials to have taken place at later periods of time, especially in the aftermath of the incident of March 5th, and the reason for that is because tensions did cool. They uh, cooled down within that time frame. Yes, there were people that were still upset, but both sides had time to um, work out strategies. Uh, they both had time to uh, get all their facts straight and to be able to make, uh, a, to make what we call concrete cases or cases that were based off of solid physical proof not just to the jurors, but to the city as a whole, for those who were coming in as spectators. Did both sides benefit from the trial? Absolutely, especially in the trial involving the eight soldiers. Given that only two out of the eight soldiers were convicted, it still benefited the Patriots, it kept their cause for separation from England alive, along with honoring the five fallen victims. As for the Loyalists, given that six out of their eight brethren were acquitted, it still had upheld the rule of law maintained by king and parliament. In other words, just because eight soldiers fired into the crowd or took matters into their own hands by means of self-defense. It didn't mean that all eight were guilty. However, what it came down to was that two out of the eight took matters into their own hands to the point where they had um, made um, many people's lives on the opposite end unsafe, unbearable. They made their lives uh, uncomfortable to the point where they knew they, they were being targeted. 
maybe not deliberately, but, but they had lost a sense of uh, security. But then again, many people had lost a sense of security, or should I say personal freedom, on the night leading up to March 5th of 1770. Well, this has been a very uh, enjoyable session, and I will have to admit that um, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to make this uh, presentation uh, given, with, given that the second trial was far more of a daunting challenge for both the prosecution and defense. But there was a trial, there was an outcome, and while, yes, there were those who were disappointed over the fact that many of the soldiers still got away, if there's any good consolation that came out of this, remember this, that two out of the eight were found guilty. So there may not have been a 100% guilty verdict, but it is fair to say, people, that 25% of the accused were found guilty. Remember that. Uh, eight soldiers, two out of eight, one-fourth, six out of eight, three-fourths. So, all in all, had none of the eight soldiers been found guilty, then is it safe to say that the Patriots could have still kept a cause for separation from England alive? Yes, but it is safe to say that had none of the soldiers been found guilty, that there could have been further uh, rioting in Boston. There could have even been um, further, um, what, what, what would you call further um, confrontations between unruly crowds and British soldiers. So, uh, once again, thank you for letting me share uh, with you um, Another great um, episode of uh, John of uh, Dan Abrams's book, John Adams Under Fire. I look forward to chatting with you all again next time here soon. Take care.